We're in this series called Each Other, and we've based it on what Jesus told his closest followers. I want you to read what Jesus said with me on the screens. Come on, read it together. I give you a new... Okay, look, where's everybody out? Come on, read it with me. I give you a new commandment. Love each other as I have loved you. Yeah. Jesus says that loving each other is essential to following him. This is something that we have got to catch. The Apostle John writes a load about this in 1 John chapter 4, that, that this is essential. You can't just say, I love God, and that's good enough. No. Jesus says, you got to have the love for God and the love for each other. It goes hand in hand. I like to see it like the cross. And I don't know if this is a good imagery for you to use, but I like to see that the vertical piece of the cross is the longest piece. That's the piece, that's the part of you that's supposed to have the most relationship, you and God. But you can't have a cross without the horizontal piece, right? And the horizontal piece is us to each other. And so you got to have both of those to make what's called the gospel. That's what the New Testament talks. Jesus taught that. Paul taught that. Peter taught that. James taught that. John taught that. Pretty good company there. They're all teaching the same thing. So we got to catch it that loving each other is essential to following Jesus. It's not optional. He gives us one command. I mean, think about this. He, He brings all the commands into one command. Jesus says, love each other. You go, wow, that's really easy. Brings it all to one. (laughs) How easy is it? It's not. It's probably the most difficult because there's no loopholes, right? I mean, he just says you've got to love each other. And then the New Testament unpacks it. This is so cool how Peter and, and James and John and Paul, how they just unpack this and they say, okay, we're called to love each other and this is how you do it. And, and so there's so many times in the New Testament different ways that Peter, James, and John write about how we're to love each other through these various ways, but no one covers it like Paul. I mean, there are like 58 different times that we are called to love each other in different ways in various ways. And I would imagine, I haven't checked yet, but I would say Paul probably wrote, you know, three quarters of those all throughout his letters to the churches, to Jesus followers all over the Mediterranean rim. Look at what Paul writes in Galatians 5. This, this to me, is a real challenge. He says, the whole law is made complete in one command. Now, we already talked about that. What was the command that Jesus said? Love each other, right? He's saying love each other. And Paul says the whole law, all of the law, the, the, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, all of the Levitical laws that you find throughout the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all, they're all combined into one command. Paul says it this way, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he goes on. He doesn't just leave it there. It, it'd be really cool if he just left it there. I, I, I wish sometimes they would just stop it at the one sentence and then you'd be like, Phew. Okay, I, I love you, man. I love you. You know, you can, just, you can just leave it there. But Paul never leaves it there. Paul says, if you go on hurting each other and tearing each other apart, you will completely destroy each other. Wow. So Paul speaks to us about hurting each other, tearing each other apart. And we do this best, and we do this most, with our mouths. Hmm. The Apostle James writes along these lines. Look what he says in James 4. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. 
Now keep in mind, he's writing to the church. If you don't know, James, the half-brother of Jesus, I always like to say when we get into this about James, what would it take for you to believe that your, your brother, your older brother, was the son of God? What would it take for you to believe that? Okay. James had a hard time believing that in the beginning, and he finally came to a point where he believed that Jesus, his half-brother, was the son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So much so that he became the leader of the first century church. So much so that he was the first martyr in the church. Wow, he believed this. And he writes to us, church, don't speak against each other. Get that on your outline. James tells us don't speak against each other. Don't speak against each other. This phrase is an interesting phrase. It's transliterated, and if you don't know anything about what that word means, basically the, the, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, and then it has to be translated so that we can understand it in English. But sometimes, as many languages, sometimes the, the wording or the phrase that's used in the Greek language doesn't quite translate easily into English. And so this word was transliterated. So it's basically the scholars were saying, as close as we can get, as close as we think, this is what they were trying to say. This, this phrase, don't speak evil against, is transliterated from a word that means, get this, to talk down. Now we know what that word is. In our modern vernacular, we, we, we have this word called slander, Right? I mean, you could be sued for slander in our culture, right? It's true. We, we know this. this. This word, this phrase, this, this idea of speaking against each other, it strikes at someone's character and reputation in order to slander or criticize or ruin or discredit them. Sharing facts about them in such a way that lowers a person in other people's eyes. You talk down about them. And you know, it's funny, when we talk about words that we say and things that we say, many of us think that we're doing, what we're doing isn't wrong because what we're saying is true, or what we're saying is accurate or correct. And so we're not thinking that we're speaking against them because we're just telling the truth. And so we say things like, now stop me if I'm wrong, but... Or we say, I don't mean to be critical, but, or we say, maybe I shouldn't say this, but, or we say, let's just keep this between us. And most of us are unaware when we do this. Isn't that crazy? I mean, we just don't think that we're talking down about people because we perceive ourselves as just sharing the truth, commenting on the facts about that person. It's kind of like a story that I saw online. I, was, I just jumped online this week, earlier this week, just to get ideas. And I came across a true story. This lady writes on this blog, Kathy of Orlando, Florida. She tells a story of a time when she visited her neighbor. And while she was at her neighbor's house, her neighbor's five-year-old son pulled out his kindergarten class picture and began describing the drawing. Pointing to the figures that he had drawn on his picture, he said, this is Robert. He hits everyone. This is Stephen. He never listens to the teacher. This is Mark. He chases us and is very noisy. And then he points to his own picture and he says, and this is me. 
just there minding my own business. <laughs> True story. And we laugh and we smile and we chuckle at this picture and these thoughts. But did you know that all of us have a tendency to do this? Let me repeat that. All of us have a tendency to do this. Except we're, we're much more sophisticated, right? We're not like a five-year-old. We don't draw a drawing of it. We just, we just comment to our friends, to, to people we work with. We just comment. Even though we may not be as unsophisticated, it's still destructive. James continues writing, verse, verse 11, James 4. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. What was God's law? We remember it, right? Jesus said there's one commandment. It's love each other. Come on, say it with me. Love each other, right? It's one law, one law. And then James says a word, and I want you to circle on your outline when we get to it. It's the word neighbor. Look what he says. God alone who gave the law is the judge. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Hmm. Remember, remember Galatians 5? Remember, the whole law is made complete in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. There it is, right? Paul, Paul talks in circles. I love this about Paul. And James, they, they just, they bring it all together and they connect all the dots and James is just connecting it to what Paul talks and they bring it all together. It's this whole idea of you got to love each other. You got to love each other. To speak against each other is to violate the law of love. To judge somebody you know, accurately, you must know all that there is to know about that person. What's in their heart? What is their motives? Think about that. To judge someone accurately, to really be the judge of that person, you have to know everything about them. The circumstances, the motives, what's in their heart, the agenda of other people around them. You have to know everything. And I'm going to ask you a question here, just a rhetorical question. How many of you know everything about the person that you're judging? You don't. I don't. That, that has been this, this. If you struggle with this like I struggle, I'm, just, I'm speaking out of experience today, okay? If you struggle with this like I do, because I have a quick wit and my mind is always analyzing and I'm just one of those kinds of people. When I meet you, sorry, but I'm profiling you. I'm serious. I'm just, just, just the way I'm wired. And you may be like me. I know there's a lot of people like me. And we just, I have a tendency to, to be doing that. And, and if I'm not careful, I will judge prematurely because I don't know their story. And that's what, that's what this is talking about. James says, the only judge is who? God. You know why? Because he knows all about them. I don't, you don't. Man, this is good. We're not God. Sometimes we want to be, but we're not God, right? The Apostle James keeps talking about our words, James 5, 9. So he talked about it in James 4, now he talks about it in James 5. Look what he writes. Brothers and sisters, read it with me. Do not complain against each other or you will be judged guilty. Now, the first one is tough to speak against someone. That's already tough. 
But now I kind of feel like, dude, James, you're meddling now, right? You're getting in my business a little bit. And I'm going to ask for you just to be honest with me. Does anybody else complain about anybody else like I complain about anybody else? Do you ever complain about people? Here, here's, the, here's the crazy thing. I'm putting this message together and I'm feeling guilty about complaining about, to, about somebody to some people at our church. I just did this. And I'm putting this message together. And God is like, bing, 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 tapping on my heart. Hello. Are you hearing what you're saying? Are you hearing this first? Get this down. Don't complain against each other. Now, don't you wish it was that easy? Don't complain. Just, we could just leave. Let's wrap it up. Let's go to habit right now, right? Just go, let's go eat lunch. Don't you wish it was that easy? Just, I'll just tell you, just don't complain. No more. No more. Don't complain. It's not that easy. We know that. Here's some interesting stuff, though. You know, if exploratory surgery was performed on a complainer, I think it would reveal what I would call spiritual heart disease. Basically, a selfish heart. Look what Jude tells us. Jude says, these people are complainers living only to satisfy their desires. There's a selfishness. There's a self-centeredness. There's a self-absorbedness that's involved in complaining. And we don't like to look in the mirror and admit that. But when we are complaining about someone else, it's very self-centered of us. It's very selfish of us to do that problem is we don't realize how dangerous complaining is. I mean, Satan, the enemy of our soul, he, he doesn't want, to, want us to experience the, the life, the, the kind of life that God wants to give us. He wants to keep us from that kind of life. Do, do you remember when Jesus said in John 10, 10, Jesus said, a thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, but I have come to give life in all its fullest. So, so he's saying that Satan, the enemy of our soul, is like that thief that comes in and he wants to kill and destroy and steal this life, this joy from us. And Jesus says, I'm coming to give it. I want you to experience to the hilt, to the fullest. And we miss it when we start complaining. Now, I don't know if you follow Huffington Post. I don't. But if you do, Huffington Post is an interesting, I thought this is really interesting stuff that comes from them. Um, December 26th, about a year ago, I think confirms what we're talking about. Look at this headline, Huffington Post online, how complaining rewires your brain for negativity. Get this, I'm giving you a lot of what they said here. Look what they say. Research shows that most people complain once a minute during a typical conversation. Think about that. Once a minute. Wow. Wow. Complaining is tempting because it feels good, but like many other things that are enjoyable, such as smoking or eating a pound of bacon, complaining, <laughs> I love that, <laughs> complaining isn't good for you. Repeated complaining rewires your brain to make future complaining more likely. Hmm. Over time, you will find it easy to be negative, uh, easier to be negative than positive, regardless of what's happening around you. Complaining becomes your default behavior, which changes how people perceive you. And here's the kicker, complaining damages other areas of your brain as well. I don't know if you knew this, but health-wise, 
complaining affects you. They, they go on, if you want to, I, I can give you the link to this. This is an amazing blog. But uh, they go on and they say that research from Stanford University has shown that complaining shrinks the hippocampus. It's the area of the brain that's critical to problem solving and intelligent thought. Now here's the kicker though, damage to the hippocampus is scary, especially when you consider that that's one of the primary brain areas that is destroyed by Alzheimer's as you get older. Hmm. So you're shrinking this area. While it's not an exaggeration to say that complaining leads to brain damage, keep in mind this is all in Huffington Post, okay? It may be an exaggeration. Well, it's not an exaggeration to say that complaining leads to brain damage. It doesn't stop there. When you complain, your body releases a stress hormone, cortisol. Cortisol shifts you into a fight or flight mode, directing oxygen, blood, and energy away from everything but the systems that are essential to immediate survival. All the extra hormone released by frequent complaining impairs your immune system, makes you more susceptible to high cholesterol, diabetes, heart disease, and obesity. It even makes the brain more vulnerable to strokes. Wow. Same Huffington Post blog says this. One thing you can do if you feel the need to complain is cultivate an attitude of gratitude. When you feel like complaining, shift your attention to something you're grateful for. Taking time to contemplate what you're grateful for reduces the hormone release 23%. Wow. Get this. Research conducted by the University of California, Davis, found that people who worked daily to cultivate an attitude of gratitude experience an improved mood and energy with substantially less anxiety due to lower cortisol levels. So, here's the question. Do you want an improved mood and energy? Do you want less anxiety? Do you want to avoid all the health issues and the brain issues and all this stuff that goes on with all of this? They're saying, develop, cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Here's the kicker. <laughs> the Apostle Paul wrote this like thousands of years ago. I mean, look at what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Be thankful. Attitude of gratitude. You know, my dad used to say, things would get rough on the job site, construction site, and my dad would say, could be worse. That was his way of being thankful, could be worse. And I, I have held on to that, it could be worse. It really could. I mean, come on, it could be worse, right? And we have a tendency to complain, 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 but it really could be worse, and sometimes, and I hope that if you find me in the mode of complaining, I'm not saying this to my kids, just to you, okay? Because my kids, that's no way. But, but if you find me in that mode of complaining, which I can be at times, do me the favor. Don't slap me in the face, but slap me with the words. It could be worse, Bart. It could be worse, right? All of us need to hear that. All of us need to be thankful. We need to come to that so that, so that the, the don't complaining against each other, that just stops. It's not even an issue because we have this attitude of being thankful. It changes things. You know, all too often we think it's just words. Who cares what we say? But, you know, it's just words. Speaking against each other and complaining against each other 
It's very serious. Jesus sees it as a very serious thing. Look at what Jesus says. Whatever is in your heart determines what you say. Wait, let's back that up and think about that. So whatever I'm saying is showing what's in my heart, right? That's what he's saying. Look what he says. He adds to it. The words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you from the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and oh, there's that word, slander, which could be complaining against and speaking against. Wow. Get this down. My words reveal my heart. Come on, say it with me. My words reveal my heart. And so often, we say things to each other and we say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean that. Really? Hello? You really didn't mean that, but you said it. Be careful. Don't write words off. Don't, don't act like it doesn't mean anything. What you say is revealing what's in your heart. You say, well, Bart, you're saying that I have a bad heart. Hmm, me too. In fact, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, you know what he says? He says the heart is deceptive more than anything else. And do you know who it deceives? The person you see in the mirror every morning. Your heart deceives you more than anybody else. Your heart needs work. Turn to the person next to you. Just tell them that. Your heart needs work. It does. We all need it, right? We're all in this together. This is a journey. If you have come to the point of perfection and you are 100% like Jesus Christ, guess what? This music stand is now yours because you need to teach me how to get there because I'm not there any more than you are. This is a journey. And my heart needs work and your heart needs work. What we say comes from what's inside us and our hearts and our mouths are directly connected to each other. And the reason we struggle with complaining about each other and speaking against each other is because we have not addressed the condition of our hearts. Our hearts are contaminated and the issue is deep down inside of us. My words, your words reveal your heart. I speak against somebody because I have something wrong in my heart. I complain against somebody because something's wrong in my heart. So, what do we do to change this? Right? I mean, come on. What, what do we do? I don't want that kind of heart. I don't think you do either. I want to change that. How can I change so that I'm not speaking against people, so that I'm not complaining against each other? How can I change this? I don't know if you've ever heard the old saying, if you can't say something good about somebody, don't say anything at all, right? That's the next part. <laughs> it's true. How do, you, how do you do that, though? Come on. Let's just be real. How, how, do you, how do you put duct tape on your mouth? Because if you're a person, like me, I'm a person of words. I'm a speaker, and, and, and my, my wit is quick, and if I'm not careful, man, my words can bite you. So how do I do this? I can't. Jesus can. I can't. Get that on your outline. Ask Jesus to help me keep my mouth shut. When I, when I think back of the relationships in my life, listen, the relationships in my life in a church setting, 
here and in other churches that Dee and I have served at, when I think back of the relationships in churches that I've been a part of that have exploded, these relationships that have broken up and they're ugly and I don't want to see the person. If I run into the person at the store, I walk the other way. And you know what I'm talking about. Come on, we all have those kinds of people. You know what, you know what has happened more than anything I'm realizing? The way I said things got me into problems. Now, I may have been completely truthful. I may have been completely right And I was expressing my heart, and that's all I was doing. And I didn't mean to hurt them, or I didn't mean for them to take it the way that it sounded. But they did. And my mouth got me in trouble. And I bet there are relationships that you have broken up and exploded because your mouth got you in trouble. And I think it's time that I asked Jesus to help me keep my mouth shut. You know why? Because I don't know their story. And I don't know their situation. And I don't know their circumstances. And I don't know their motives. And I don't know their heart. Long ago, I heard Rick Warren say, God gave you two ears and one mouth because you should use your ears the most. And that's my problem. How about you? I want to talk before I listen. And Jesus needs to help me keep my mouth shut. Look at what David writes in the Psalms. Lord, help me control my tongue. (laughs) Help me be careful about what I say. Oh, man, that's the truth. And what that is, is it's surrendering to the Lord. It's saying, Jesus, I, I need you to help me keep my mouth shut. I surrender my words, my mouth, my thoughts. I surrender them to you. And, and when I surrender, it's in the surrendering of my mouth that Jesus helps me in the silencing of my mouth. He's the one that will check me, that will grab me and say, no, 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 don't say that. Don't go there. You know? I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but man, I have experienced that repeatedly in times. And it's probably because I've, this is something I got to work on. And, and I'm about ready to say something, and I feel in my spirit, don't say that. Sometimes I listen, sometimes I don't. But I'm, I'm hearing it, right? And, and we're all that way. It's in that surrendering process that Jesus helps us to silence. Now, I'm not saying that. We should keep quiet on everything and never say anything. And if a person is living in, you know, chosen sin, lifestyle sin, and all, I'm not, I'm not even addressing. This is when we are speaking against someone or complaining against someone. That's what I'm talking about. It's our sin. That's what I'm talking about. My sin. And so in that surrendering, I also need to ask Jesus to change me. Get that down. Change me. As I surrender my heart. I I need him to help me keep my mouth shut. And I need him to change me. When your heart is contaminated. When your heart is bad. What needs to happen? Heart surgery. Jesus needs to come in and perform heart surgery on you. The prophet Ezekiel talks about that God would come in and take our stone, our stony heart, our heart of stone, and replace it with a heart of flesh. I love that. That's, that's so rich in imagery. And, and that's what, we, we need Jesus to come in and change our hearts. 
I need him. I'm, maybe it's just me here today, so this is confessional for me, all right? This is therapy. I, I need him. And that's, how, that's what we're talking about. I need Jesus to change my heart. Paul, he, what, what we're talking about here, and, and this is a big term that we don't talk a whole lot about because of the, the technical side of this, but Paul talks a lot about this in his writings. It's the term sanctification. And all that sanctification is, is becoming more and more like Jesus every day. That's, what it's, that's really the simple definition. That, that you are changing every day you are changing. And so my question to you and my question to me, when it comes to complaining about other people or speaking against other people, have I changed? Or am I still doing it? Am I still the same complainer that I was last year at this time? Or last month at this time? Everybody follow that? Because if that's the case, I am not changing. And if I am not changing, then Jesus is not working on my heart. And if Jesus is not working on my heart, why not? You and I need to ask him, to change our hearts as we surrender to change. Sanctification involves every area of our life. It, it expresses a double action. Paul talks about this. This is really cool. A putting on and a putting off. I feel like I'm Mr. Miyagi from Karate Kid, right? Walks on, walks off, you know, you know that whole thing, right? Or, or Jackie Chan now. That's the current version of it. But, it. but it's a putting on and a putting off. So I want you to do something with me, because this, this would be a good visual for us. I just want you to put your hands out in front of you. Can okay, you do it like this? Okay. And I want you to imagine that you have a, a coat or a shirt or something on, and you are taking this off. Okay, So you're putting it off, and now you are taking what God's going to give you, and you're putting it on. So you're putting it off and putting it on, right? Put it off, put it on, right? Okay. So we got this in our head. Wax on, wax off. Put it off. Put it on, put it off, put it on. That's what Paul talks about. Look at this. He, he talks a lot about this in Ephesians to the, to the, uh, the um, believers, the followers of Jesus in Ephesus. And then he also talks to the believers, the followers of Jesus in the city of Colossae. But take a look. This is what Paul writes. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life. That's putting it off, throwing it off, getting rid of it. Look what he says. Instead... Let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. I'm not going to ask you if you feel truly righteous and holy because I don't always feel that way every day. But that's what sanctification is all about. It's to get us there. It's that everyday process. Look what he says. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, uh-oh, harsh words, and slander. Put it off, put it on. Come on, say it with me. Put it off, put it on, right? That's what he's saying. This is a dominant, dominant theme. And we look in those words in those last few, uh, the, the words in that last phrase there, it's all about our words. That's the dominant theme. If Jesus is making you new, get this right here, hang on. If Jesus is making you new, then your words will change. Oh, are you saying I'm going to talk Christianese? No, 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 no. Because that's fake. Right? That's just subculture stuff. I'm saying that you're going to be a nicer person. I'm saying that you're going to be a person that people want to hang out with. 
Because your words are no longer negative as much as they used to be. Your words are no longer um, accusing as they used to be. Your words are not against people. Your words are for people, positive, encouraging. So there's a change that begins to take place. It's a demonstrated change. Don't miss this. If Jesus is changing you, then your words will change. If your words are not changing, let's reverse engineer this. If your words are not changing, then Jesus isn't changing you. Look what Paul says, Colossians 3. Put these things out of your life, anger, bad temper, doing or saying things that hurt others, using evil words when you talk. You have left your old sinful life and things you did before. You have begun to live the new life in which you are being made new and are becoming like the one who made you. Becoming more and more like Jesus every day. Sanctification. Becoming more and more like Jesus every day. So what Jesus does in your heart should affect what you say. Hmm. Sanctified speech. Go figure, right? Holy speech. Wow. Set apart speech. Speech that will be an indicator. The change is taking place in your heart. And yet we struggle with this. I struggle with this. My words don't always reflect what Jesus is doing in my life. How about you? Sometimes my tongue goes faster than my brain. Anybody else like me in that? And you say it, and you can't get it back. Hmm. There's still a lot of work that needs to take place in me. And so on Friday... I was reminded of the prophet Isaiah. I love this story. Isaiah 6 was a time when the the whole entire nation of Israel was just in a bunch of turmoil. And they, they were not living as people of God, as a people that God had chosen. They were not living that way. And the prophet Isaiah was coming in and he was saying, you guys have got to change. If you don't change, things are going to happen. It's going to get really bad really quick. You, you have got to change. And no one was listening. And he kept pointing his fingers and saying, God's going to move and, and judgment is coming. You have to change. And we come to Isaiah 6. After he's been ripping into the actions of the sinful people around him. And Isaiah has an experience with God. Look at this. Isaiah 6.1. The prophet writes, Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord. Period. I mean, we're going to watch this movie, I can only imagine, in, in what, a couple of weeks. Isaiah, I saw the Lord. What does God look like? I mean, 
Look what he says. I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe. Ladies, you know what a train is, right? Guys, we don't really choo-choo. It's what we think, but that's not what it is. It's, it's that piece of that dress that just comes like a wedding dress and it just kind of follows or a princess gown and it just follows. The train of his robe filled the temple. Basically what he was saying is the, the, the presence, the aura, who God was, was so overwhelming and big that he filled the temple when Isaiah was there. Look what it says. In that moment, Isaiah realizes who he is as a person. And he says, I am a sinful man. I have Filthy what? Wait, what? He, he doesn't say, I have done wrong things. I have sinned with my hands. He doesn't say, I have thought wrong things. I have sinned with my mind. He doesn't say that I have committed actions that, that cause me to, to be guilty. He doesn't say that. He says, I have filthy lips. He's talking about his words. Look what he goes on. He says, I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. Does that sound like anybody you know? I feel that way. My mouth gets me in trouble and I know your, your mouth gets you in trouble too. I am a man of filthy lips and you have filthy lips too. And he says, yet I have seen the king the Lord of heaven. Hmm. Probably the truest and most obvious expression of the sense of his own sinfulness is he says, my words are sinful. In one version of the scripture it says, he says, woe is me. You know, he's saying it's hopeless. I, I cannot be in the presence of a holy God that fills the temple so much because I have a mouth that is dirty. I feel like the Orbit commercial, right? And dirty mouth, you know. That, that's, that's exactly what Isaiah is saying. He's saying, I have a mouth that is dirty and I can't be in the presence of a holy God. I'm ruined. I'm wrecked. I can't come close to God with a mouth like this. Do you see how important this is for us to get? The people in the Bible, they got this. The people who are following God, they get this. Our mouths keep us from God. Friends, your mouth can keep you from God because it reveals your heart. And Isaiah said, I am, I am ruined. And in this moment of confession, I am a sinful man. I am ruined. I have a dirty mouth, I have filthy lips in this moment of confession. You know what God does? He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't say, get out of my presence, you dirty, filthy man. He doesn't say, get away from me. You can't have anything to do with me. It says, Isaiah says that one of the seraphim, the angels, flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs, and he touched my, what? Lips. And he said to me, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed. Your sins are forgiven. I think this is what we need in our life. 
Our words get us into trouble. Our words hurt people around us. Our words hurt our church. We speak against each other. We complain against each other. We are guilty. Jesus comes alongside and says, you're guilty, but I can forgive you. That's what the cross is all about, right? Thank you, God, for saving me. Isn't that the song we sang? Thank you, God, for forgiving my, my words. So, as I was just like wrapping off this prep for today, I just kind of went through these the, the, the memories of relationships that have just blown up in my face because of things that I've said. Now, I know there are other factors, and I, I realize, and you, you say, well, Bart, you can't just blame yourself. And I, I get that, but, but I know that a lot of the damage that was done was because of what I, what I said and how I said it. And um, in, in thinking through and just kind of playing that audio and that, that video again and again in my head and thinking through some of these relationships, even, even you know, more recent times where I've said things that have hurt people. And I felt like the Holy Spirit said, I can forgive this. You can change. Do you, do you know how freeing it is to know that you can change? That you don't, you don't have to stay that way? Because I think you're like me and I don't like to, to hurt people. I don't mean to hurt people with the things that I say. It happens, though. And I, and I would like for God to change me. Anybody else like me in that? Just say, you know, I just, God, just change my heart. Make, make something new in me. But if you've got to take my old crusty heart out and put in something new, then do it. Change me. Because I don't want to be a complainer. I don't want to speak against other people. I want that to change. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father.